Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available to you for free. That's more than 600 episodes. All of it is free. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Tip your server, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. Hello, how are you? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm in Los Angeles. I have Adam Manns back on the program today. He published a book in 2011 called Go the Fuck to Sleep. It's a children's book for adults. It kind of created its own category. It went viral, became a huge bestseller. It sold all over the world. He wrote it in like an hour. I don't know. It's like a crazy story, and I'm sure you've probably heard of the book. He has also published uh, a handful of novels, including The End of the Jews, Rages Back, and uh, Angry Black White Boy. He also published this year uh, a humor book with Alan Zweibel and Dave Barry called A Field Guide to the Jewish People. And uh, so along with Go the Fuck to Sleep... He's published uh, You Have to Fucking Eat, and now uh, he has published Fuck, Now There Are Two of You. So he's got a lot going on. I had a really interesting conversation with Adam Mansback. Uh, oh, and he also wrote the uh, screenplay for the movie Barry, that movie Barry about uh, Barack Obama. Remember that? And he's working on some television projects. The guy is busy, and he's done a lot of different things, and I think you're going to find it fascinating. So let's get to Adam Mansback right away. Let's just go straight to it. Are you ready? This is Adam Mansback in his latest addition to the uh, children's book for adult 
empire that he is building. Children's book for adult empire. Children's book for adults empire. You know what I mean. It's called Fuck, Now There Are Two of You. It's available from Akashic Books. All right, this is Adam Mansback. Go the Fuck to Sleep began essentially as a joke, like so many things do, in my world anyway. Um, I was in Michigan hanging out with a bunch of poets who I was going to teach for with a week in the summer. And we were in this Victorian house that had been lent to us by like friends of the program. The program was for college kids, high school kids. I, I do it every year, or I did. And uh, yeah, I was. I, we were all waiting for this one guy who had borrowed a bicycle and left in search of liquor to come back. And we were like, you know, shooting the shit. We were basically all in our underwear, and we were waiting for him to come back with the with the bottle of rum that he had, you know, decided he was going to go get. And I made a joke about how I was going to write a children's book called Go the Fuck to Sleep. My daughter was two at the time. Sleeping was not something she did readily. I was sometimes in her room for upwards of two hours trying to get her to go to sleep. And a certain kind of desperation or derangement even sets in when you're in a child's room that long. I've been there before. Yeah. Trying to get them to do this one thing that seems so fucking basic and is like necessary for their survival. And you cannot convince them to do it. And they're like bouncing off the walls. Um, so I said, you know, yeah, I got it. You know, I'm gonna write this children's book called go the fuck to sleep. And everybody, the three people in the room laughed and I put it on Facebook. I said, be on the lookout for my forthcoming children's book. Go the fuck to sleep. Um, but it's not that I got some mammoth response on Facebook. I got, you know, the standard, like 10 likes that you would get, you know, from any post that you put on Facebook in 2010 or whatever. Um, but in writing that, it did sort of immediately occur to me what that book would be, the way that it would kind of mash up the traditional children's book, the board book in both senses of the word, because I would be bored as hell reading them, <laughs> um, you know, that you read to a little kid with the cutesy rhymes and this, you know, kind of drowsy, lulling rhymes that don't actually lull the kid to, the kid to sleep at all, but they make the parent, you know, half asleep. Um how I would kind of intercut that, intersperse that with like an honest parental monologue, what's actually running through your mind as you attempt this Herculean task of putting this kid to sleep. So I put it on Facebook and I didn't really think any more of it because something happened uh, about half an hour later that was really ridiculous, which was that shortly after my friend Roger had come back with the rum and we all started drinking in the kitchen of this house, the grandparents uh, showed up with their grandson. They were all supposed to be gone for a soccer tournament all week, and we were supposed to have the run of their house. And instead, these two, like, elderly, kind of patrician, white-haired Canadians showed up at the house with their 14-year-old grandson because apparently his soccer team was the worst soccer team, and they got bounced out of the tournament immediately. And they had no idea that their uh, children had kind of lent their house to these writers who are going to be camping out there for a week. So they walk into their kitchen and find like a bunch of half naked, half drunk blacks and Jews, like <laughs> having a party in their house, which could have been very bad, but luckily they were Canadian. So the dude just like walked up and was like, hi, I'm John. Who are you? And why are you in my son's house? And for the next week, we like lived there with them. <laughs> It was very ridiculous. Like, wow. Yeah, it was very weird. That's um, a pretty easygoing group of Canadians. They were extremely easygoing. And, like, 
you know, we were like, uh, we're sorry, you know, we can probably leave. We can probably find somewhere else. And they're like, no, no. You know, and we kind of explained why we were there and what we were doing. They were like, that's great. Everybody wins. I remember the guy being like, everybody wins. I was like, yeah, John, like everybody wins, you know. And it was really ridiculous because, you know, we would wake up sort of bleary and hungover. And, and, and my friend Kevin and I would stumble downstairs to make coffee and plan the class we had to teach an hour later. And no matter how early we got up, the grandma was already up and like very perky and like making coffee. And we had to kind of like make awkward conversation with her, you know, it's really ridiculous. Like, you'd be like, hi, boys. Like, are you ready to teach? We're like, no, not really. I made coffee. We're like, oh, this coffee is so good. You know, like it's, uh, it's so much better than the coffee we made before you got here. And she was like, really? I wonder why that is. Because in Canada, the way we make it, we're like, yo, it's the same fucking coffee. We're just trying to be polite. Like, can you leave us alone? And they're like sleeping in this little alcove right off the kitchen. And we were like, we don't want to disturb you. You know, we won't invite anyone over. They're like, no, do whatever you want. Have a party. Who we don't mind. The, who are these maniacs? <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. And so, uh, but in the middle of it all, so you just kind of shelved in your mind yeah. the idea for Go the Fuck to Sleep. Yeah. It sorry. Was, this story ends up having nothing to do with Go the Fuck to Sleep. Oh, I was going to say, did they, have a, did they have a baby? <laughs> what was going on? Did they have a no. Kid? So I, I, I spent my week in, in Ann Arbor and then I went home and sat down and in, you know, like maybe an hour jotted down a first draft of go the fuck to sleep um why like what was it, it was like oh that was a good idea maybe i should just do this yeah yeah it was like that would that would be funny let me give it a shot um and you know what i want to i want to say i think this is the case a lot of times is that really great ideas a often happen when you're like relaxed when you're not trying to have a great idea yeah like you're talking about hanging around with some people getting drunk like, we're not sitting around trying to have, like, a breakthrough creative idea. Yeah. The second uh, thing that I feel like, uh, you know, is embodied by Go the Fuck to Sleep is great ideas tend to be, like, really obvious in retrospect. Like, why the, why the fuck did nobody ever do this before? Yeah. It's like one of those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I've certainly had hundreds of people express that sentiment to me in the ensuing years. Like, I could have written that book. Why didn't I think and of that? You're like, but you didn't. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and nor was it any kind of sophisticated attempt to enter the zeitgeist. You know what I mean? It was like not something that struck me as a viable commercial idea. Even it was something that when I initially wrote it, I had no designs on publishing. I just figured I would read it to my family and maybe they would think it was funny. You know, it just seemed like a fun little exercise, you know, and I like writing poetry and, you know, before I was a, a novelist or anything, I was a rapper and I wrote rhymes all the time. So writing in meter and rhyming is something that I've always enjoyed and always something that I've had a lot of fun doing. So wait, so people, for people listening, because I think people are like, well, this is the guy who writes the children's book for adults, but you also write literary fiction. Yeah. You rap. Or you have rapped. Mm -hmm. You're into music. Yep. Like you have a very a varied career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I should say, you know, this was when I wrote the book was like 2011, uh, 2010. It came out in 2011. You know, at that time, I had I had published three novels and a book of poetry, um, and had a yeah a viable career as a writer, um, and was teaching in the MFA program at Rutgers Camden. That was like my – I was the, the visiting writer in residence. Um, yeah, I, I, my, my most recent book at that time was a novel called The End of the Jews, which had come out a year and a half before. And 
Yeah, like yeah, did okay. Won a won a won the California Book Award for the best like novel published in California. So like, I wasn't just. I mean, I was just some schmuck, but I I also wasn't just entirely just some <laughs> schmuck. You know, like right. like I, and it's funny because you know, not that I want to complain in the slightest. Um, but go the fuck to sleep sort of had the effect of eradicating everything else I'd previously ever done. So I was often in these positions where I'd be doing an interview and somebody. Most memorably, Kathy Lee Gifford on the Today Show was like, "So, what did you do before you wrote this book?" You know, I'm like, "Yo, I, I wrote a bunch of other fucking books, Kathy Lee Gifford. Like, <laughs> nobody prepped you for this interview, you know?" Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, had I not already been a writer, I probably would not have had the means to know how to go about publishing this book, which at the time there was nothing like, and very few people sort of saw the lane or the avenue or the vector by which it made any sense to publish. Um, when I showed the book to my agent, he was like, look, it's hilarious, but I can't sell it. You know, he was like, I just tried to sell some parody book by some writers for David Letterman and like nobody bit. So, you know, uh, if, if you want to do this with Akashic, which is the publisher I, I did do it with, and I had sent it to them first. They were friends of mine. They're an independent house in Brooklyn. The publisher, Johnny Temple, was a neighbor of mine in Brooklyn and a buddy and all that. I knew he had two kids who didn't sleep. He had told me a story about how he – they would fall asleep in the car. So he would find himself driving through like three of the five boroughs just so these kids could take a nap. I had sent it to him. He had expressed interest, but I sort of also sent it to my agent. And my agent was like, man, just go do it with Johnny if he wants to do it. Like I got nothing for you. Um, but even Johnny and I had a several-month discussion before he committed to publishing the book. Because he wasn't sure there was a market for it. And I wasn't really even trying to convince him. He'd be like, man, I don't know. This might just be funny to you and me. We might just be like those shitty, cynical parents. And I was like, you're probably right. You know, like, let, you know, let's keep thinking. Isn't on it. it amazing in retrospect? <laughs> it that, is. That you guys had this much like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. And it was this very piecemeal thing where he, it was sort of something he would show people now and again and gauge reactions. I remember he showed his wife and she was like, I'm crying. You have to publish this. And we kind of filed that away. And then shortly after that, he showed it to Jonathan Lethem, who happened to be doing some event and mentioned his own kids and they're not sleeping. He showed it to Lethem. Lethem was like, this is great. And, you know, he would give me this like sort of periodic feedback and we just kind of like muse on it for a little while. There was a moment when he walked it into his local bookstore in Brooklyn to gauge whether they thought it was a good idea and also like where they would even shelve it because we were in this no man's land where it clearly wasn't a children's book, but we also didn't know what it was. So he was literally like, what do you think of this and where would it go? You invented a genre. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were like, we'd put this in the parenting section. And Johnny <laughs> called me all excited, like, yo, there's a parenting section, <laughs> which confirms our earlier thesis that we were just like bad parents. You know? Right. Right. Um, so eventually we did decide to publish it. My friend Ricardo Cortez did the illustrations. Um, he's so you had that guy like in the pipeline. Ricardo's a buddy. Yeah, Ricardo's you, a you buddy. You knew he could do the kind of illustration that would work in a board book. Yeah, and in fact, I should say that when I submitted the book to Johnny, I submitted it with like three or four sample illustrations that Ricardo had done. So I brought him in even earlier. Did you pay him? No, I think he did it on spec. And I was like, hey, you know, like, let's see if we can sell this. Um, no, I did not pay him. Um, 
He's since been paid. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, Ricardo is somebody I'd known since college. I ran a, a hip-hop magazine in college, um, and Ricardo was my art director then. So I'd known him for a long time. You sound like you are of hip-hop world. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, like where are you from originally? Boston. So from Boston to New but, York. But why do I why do I feel like you sound like you're from New York? Maybe because I've spent it longer in New York almost at this point than Boston. Long, I've spent more time during which I could speak in New York than in Boston. Yeah. Um, I moved to New York for college in '94, and then I didn't move to the West Coast until like 2006. So yeah, yeah, okay. and even before that temperamentally i was always a new yorker my family is from new york and moved to boston you know uh, all that kind of your thing. parents have the like a new york accent no no my, my parents grew up in boston when i say my family i mean like my grandparents are from new york oh, my, my, my grandfather's from the bronx my grandmother's from the upper west side they moved to cambridge in the, the early 50s that kind of thing hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so let's, uh, we'll get there, but I want to continue with Go the Fuck to Sleep because it's yeah. such a fascinating story. <laughs> so you get to the point where you're submitting some sample illustrations. At what point does it become real? Um, so after these couple of months on the fence, Johnny and I decide, yeah, let's do it. Let's publish the book. Um, and I was just tickled that that this ridiculous book was even going to be published. I still had no expectations really for it. Um, I did unearth an email from me to Johnny very early in the process that says something like the market for this book is every parent in the world. But I don't think I believed that. I just thought it was hilarious that I was going to get to publish this book with fuck in the title that was like this <laughs> fake children's book. You know, I thought that was in itself hilarious. That's a victory by itself. Totally. Um, and I guess the, the next thing that really happens is in uh, April of 2011, which is six months before the book is meant to be published, the pub date is like uh, October, um, I, I had just gotten a, a finished PDF of the book. We had just sent it to the printers, um, and I had been asked to do a reading at a museum in Philadelphia where I was living at the time. A reading of Go the Fuck to Sleep? Just any kind of reading. Like, basically, it was an evening of salon performances. So they had, like, 50 performers lined up who were each going to do, you know, five or ten minutes. Um, and they put me on dead last. I went on after a 95-year-old tap dancer, um, which is a hard act to follow. I was going to say. You know? <laughs> I mean, and she went for it. She got like a standing ovation. She had danced with the UB Blake Orchestra. 
Ubi Blake died in 1980 <laughs> at the age of like 160. You right, know what I mean? Right, so right. like, yeah, and it's you don't ever want to follow a 95 year old. But at not, least if you're going last, like it's nice to have somebody who wakes the crowd up a little bit. Yeah, well, the crowd that's left anyway, because by that point, this evening had been sort of poorly planned, and like half of the audience was gone because sure. they had just booked a billion people. You know. Um, but it is, you know, following a 95-year-old on stage, on the freeway, it's not something you want to do at all. But I read the book to maybe 200 people, and I had the illustrations behind me on a screen, and it was well-received. And I remember calling Johnny on the way home, and I was like, hey, man, like, people seem to like this book. Like, we might, you know, this might be a thing. Um, the Amazon page for the book had just gone up for pre-orders, and I thought to check the numbers the next day to see if anybody had in fact pre-ordered it because there were questions, you know, like after I got off stage, people were like, can I buy the book? Where can I buy the book? And I was like, it, you know, pre-order it on Amazon. So when I checked, the book was at 125 out of all books on Amazon. What does that mean? Do we know? We don't know empirically, but we know there's only 124 books selling more copies. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, and again, as a literary novelist, I'd never seen a number on any of my books that was probably less than you know, four or five digits. Like this seemed like an unimaginably low number to me and certainly represented something of significance. Um, and by the end of the week, the book was number one on Amazon um, based on, I guess, word of mouth. Pre-order. Pre-order. Like yeah. the book isn't even available yet. The book has not even been printed yet. The so, book is not physically in existence. So you're telling me that go the fuck to sleep on the basis of a salon literary reading or variety show performance in Philadelphia in a matter of five days goes from an unknown entity from a tiny publisher to number one on Amazon. Yes. And it then proceeds to stay at number one really for the next like eight months. I don't know. Um, if, I don't know if I told you this, but, um, the, the first time we talked, um, Adam and I talked, you know, for those of you listening once before, um, in an unrelated context, but I got the PDF for your book from a friend. That's how I first learned of it. It, yeah. it went around. So that's the next thing that happened is the book hit number one and began to generate buzz and discussion because this unknown book from this tiny press that had not yet even been printed was sitting there at number one. So people began to try to figure out what was going on. And a PDF of the entire book that we had distributed to booksellers in order to get them to stock the book and support the book because we figured it was going to be an uphill battle because it says fuck on the cover. That PDF kind of leaked and began to ricochet around the Internet and it landed in probably hundreds of thousands of people's mailboxes. Um, How did it leak? Presumably some bookseller with, with, with the best of intentions like forwarded it to their cousin because they thought it was funny. And then it just kind of like got out there. And, you know, we were initially – and it was – I mean by, by no means was it planned. Like it's not like we decided to leak our own book. We were in fact naively terrified that we were now dead in the water and that nobody was going to buy the book because it was available in its entirety for free. Luckily – it's bad form to show up at a baby shower with a low resolution printed right. out, stapled right. together PDF of a book. It'd be like, here you go. Like it's the greatest marketing 
you could have possibly hoped for. It yeah, was free. It was free, and it, it it was great marketing because it also gave people a sense of of ownership and of discovery and of being a, a, you know kind of an early ad- adapter and an acolyte and a distributor of this thing. So yeah, I think it made a lot of people feel like they were sort of you know part of the process, and they were. Um, so the next challenge was okay. Six months is too long. Like you know, th- I mean, it's funny. It's it's. It was extremely exciting, and also we were staring into the absolute unknown because, you know, we fit, we had no idea whether this was just kind of a blip on the cultural radar, and it was going to, you know, like at any given moment when I refreshed the Amazon tab on my computer, which has been open now for like nine years, you know, <laughs> like I expected that the book would have dropped from number one maybe to like 59,000, like who knew, you know? Things come and go all the time. Like that's how the culture works. So we figured that there was no way we were going to be able to sustain this momentum and stay at number one until October. Um, So we tried to move it forward and we established the idea of trying to publish it in time for Father's Day, which was mid-June. So we started rushing the process um, and we did manage to do that. We got it out in time for Father's Day. It sat at number one throughout that time and then for many months afterward was released on Father's Day, June 14th. Um, Sam Jackson did the audio book. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, we were in a position to get kind of whoever we wanted. We sold it to Audible and they were like, who do you want to do this? And we gave them a list and Sam was on the list along with a few other people. And, you know, we had enough momentum and they had enough money to throw behind this that they could make anybody they wanted a, a nice offer. Um, another thing that happened during that period was that all of the big publishing houses began trying to buy the book out from under Akashic. Really? Yeah. They and started, Akashic was like, no. Akashic was like, no. And I remember, it, again, it was this fraught time because we had no idea whether this thing had any legs, you know, like the bottom could have dropped out at any moment and we had no way of knowing. Um, so there were some really tense moments where I was like, man, I, I could walk away. I could take one of these deals, walk away right now with more money than I've ever made at one time. Um, and Johnny, you know, he's a publisher. So he was like, look, I'm publishing this book. I don't want to do this. I don't want to sell. But he and I also had these discussions like, well, look, there's got to be a number that we would at least consider, you know, we just, we'd have to, you know, what is that number? Is it a million? Is it 1.5? We decided it was 1.5. And then somebody offered us (laughs) 1.5 and we said no. Um, Why? Because ultimately it would have been betting against the book. You know what I mean? Like financially, I would have stood to do better with Akashic because they have a, a profit sharing model. So, you know, I owned a significant percentage of the book, much more so than the royalty rate I would have gotten from any of these mainstream publishers. Interesting. So there was that. And then there was just the fact that Johnny's my friend and I love Akashic and I love what they do. And I wanted them to enjoy this success with me. Like I believe in independent publishing, um, you know, but I ultimately, I, I didn't want to bet against my book and trade kind of a higher floor for a lower ceiling, so to speak. Um, so we made clear that we were not interested in, in hearing any more offers. And then some of these houses began calling my agent and trying to get me to make kind of a side deal and fuck Johnny over. You know, like 
And that was when I really felt good about my decision to stay with Johnny because these people were his friends and colleagues. You know, like the, the New York publishing world is small. These are people who undoubtedly knew Johnny personally, knew everybody at Akashic personally. They go to the same cocktail parties. They go to the same book fairs and festivals and expos. And here they were calling my people and being like, look, what if we can get you out of this contract? What if you just break your deal with Akashic, you know, and, and come and do the book with us? Jackals. Yeah. So, yeah. So that did not appeal to me at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, we made it to publication day. The book debuted at number one on the Times bestseller list where it stayed for, you know, a long time. Um, Can I ask you a question about yeah. pre-orders? Mm-hmm. When you see that your book is at number one on Amazon and it's only available for pre-order, does Akashic have access to the number of pre-orders that are coming in? Did no. You, did you have a sense of volume? Because you have to make sure you have enough books in print to right. satisfy your customers, right? Absolutely. No. We, we, did, that, that we did not, and that remains the case now. Um, you know, the way that book sales are tracked is through a uh, – it used to be called BookScan. BookScan just got bought by somebody else, so now it's like – I think it used to be like Nielsen book scan. Now it's something else book scan. Um, you can track sales pretty effectively using that week by week, but not when you're in the pre-order mode. Um, then it's much more mysterious. I just went through this with the book I just published um, with the sequel to Go the Fuck to Sleep called Fuck Now There Are Two of You. <laughs> and, and yeah, we were trying to figure out these very things like a month ago. Um, we knew what our Amazon numbers were, but that's a really mysterious, opaque thing because, you know... It's just relative to other books. So sometimes your ranking might dip by thousands of, of numbers, but it doesn't actually mean you're selling less books. It just means that something shifted in the algorithm and they put 500 titles on sale for 99 cents, but you're still selling what you sold. Other times your number stays consistent, but you you know you get your weekly numbers and you're you're down a whole bunch of books. Like it's it's very mysterious. I've, um, heard, I've heard that like if you're the only way that you're really selling a significant number of books as if you're in like the top 1000 or 500 books. I think that's fairly true. I mean, I guess it depends what you mean by significant, but yeah, I like think double digits, <laughs> I think triple digits, triple digits. Um, I would say that if you're in the top 5,000, you're probably selling in triple digits. Um, yeah, but, but if, yeah, but, but, but you know, but the difference between being five thousand and one thousand is very significant. The difference between eight hundred and three hundred, or you know, two fifty and one twenty-five, one twenty-five. I mean, I know way too much about this now. Like I've been. When you say triple digits, does that mean within the last twenty-four hours? Like you know what I'm saying? Like how? Does right. It... Well, that's another aspect. Is like the the kind of staying power that a book has. Um, often, you know, a significant a significant media hit. Will will drop you down pretty low, but it's important to kind of monitor like the bounce back. Like how how long do you stay there? And yeah, if it's only a few hours and you quickly start climbing back up into the thousands, yeah, it's it's not um, it's probably not going to translate into a ton of sales. Um, but if you stay there for six days or whatever, it's a different story. I mean, it's very weird. Like I I. I I analyze this stuff. This is, you know, some people like check their stock portfolio. I check my Amazon rankings. I cannot you know? <laughs> imagine the experience psychologically for you as a literary author of, um, fair to say, like modest means, 
right? At that point in your life prior to go the fuck to sleep. Yeah. I definitely had to hustle to, to make yeah, a living. You, you were know? making it, but you weren't like, you weren't like living high on the hog. No, no, it was, you know, and you have this book that's in pre-order phase that is stuck at number one on Amazon. You don't know how many copies that means. Like you don't know what that quantifies to. Right. Number one is good. Yeah. Number one is, uh, it's the best number, you know, yeah. that Amazon has to offer. So are you like, what is happening in your head? Are you, you're like, Oh my God, like, this, I'm going to sell, I'm going to get rich off this book that I came up with in a flash. Yes. That's Pre- what you were thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But also, as I say, there was this real question mark about how long this could possibly be a thing. I mean, at some point our thinking shifted and it became, what does it take to, uh, to achieve kind of escape velocity, you know, and get into orbit and become something that has a, a kind of perennial appeal, you know, like it's one thing to be the hot gift item or the hot baby shower present for the season. And it's another to be fucking good night moon, you know? So right. how do we get there? And, you know, and all these other things were sort of happening at the same time. Like we were selling foreign rights all around the world. I, I did a movie deal for the, for the movie rights to the book. Um, you know, all of, yeah, all of these other things were sort of happening. There was this sort of onslaught of media and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thinking sort of, my thinking began to shift. And, you know, I always wanted to stay proactive and ahead of the curve in terms of thinking about how we could, yeah, burn that rocket fuel, get into orbit and have this kind of long life for the book. Is there, are there strategic moves that you can make that, or, or are there strategic moves that you made that helped to take it from novelty item with a temporary lifespan, you know, in the culture to a book that, like you said, like a good night moon or a where the wild things are just sells year after year after year. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think there were, I mean, there were any number of decisions to make. I don't want to, I don't know that I can pinpoint that many specific things that we did that ensured that, but um, certainly the the success of of Sam Jackson as the voice of the audiobook was very significant. I mean, he was on Letterman reading the audiobook, right? Like that's not something that happens. People don't go on late night shows and read read audiobooks. You know, um, he was the face of it. We had video of him recording it, which went viral in itself. And this spawned other celebrity readings. And we were smart enough to realize that each one of those was incredibly significant and had the potential to go viral and set off a new wave of awareness and excitement around the book. So, you know, like for the... The, for the for the premiere party for the book or the the publication party the launch party at the New York Public Library, um, Werner Herzog did a reading of the book. No shit. Yeah, he wasn't there, but he recorded it. Right. Uh, Paul Holdengraber, who ran the NYPL Live program, is a friend of his, and he convinced Herzog to do it. And then we also had Judah Friedlander show up and read it live. So we were already kind of amassing these celebrity readings, and at some point that sort of became a thing in itself. And um, 
celebrity readings that we had nothing to do with would happen. And each one of those gave us a tremendous bump. So like, so like celebrities would just say, I want to do this of my own volition. Pretty much. Um, where would they be like out at a club or something or, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some of them. I mean, like it, you know, it, once, once the book became sort of just identified with being a fun and sort of transgressive, but also like very mainstream thing to read, like, I don't know, LeVar Burton, who's a wonderful dude, was doing some kind of charity fun drive of some kind. And as an incentive to all the volunteers, he was like, you know, if you, if you reach this peak or whatever, you make this, you earn us this much money on the phone banks or something, I'll read you Go the Fuck to Sleep. So boom, suddenly there's a video of LeVar Burton reading Go the Fuck to Sleep. And it's like, holy shit, this is like, you know, reading Rainbow, like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> this is happening. Uh, and that sets off a wave. And then, you know, Jennifer Garner was, was the cover uh, the subject of a cover story for Vanity Fair, and they decided it would be cute to do a video of her reading Go the Fuck to Sleep. And that was like three, no, that was like, that was five years after the book came out. And suddenly Jennifer Garner reads the book, and it gets eight million views on YouTube, and suddenly the book is back at number one. Um, Cardi B is pregnant and goes on um, The Tonight Show, and Fallon is like, hey, I got a present for you. Hands her the book. She reads the book on the air and suddenly you know i'm like about to go to sleep in california and my phone starts blowing up with people on the east coast who were like yo cardi b's on the tonight show reading your book and i'm like what the fuck you know it's like you gave people like it's magical you gave people like uh almost like a stand-up act yeah like people can perform the book essentially and it's like guaranteed to kill because it captures something fundamental it's like it just hits this sweet spot yeah 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 totally and then, and then there were also like viral videos of people who were not celebrities one of my favorite videos ever of the book was sent to me by somebody who gave it to her grandmother i'm sorry gave it to her mother to read to her daughter so it's this very adorable elderly filipino woman who has no idea what she's just been handed and begins reading it to her grandkid. And only when she gets to the first curse at the end of the first page, does she kind of realize she's been set up and she, <laughs> and she's like, Oh no. And she like giggles and she's like, this is so bad, but she's clearly enjoying it. And she keeps reading it. And it's just, it's like adorable. And that, that thing is probably past a, a million views on YouTube, you know? Damn. Um, so it's all kinds of things. And you know, everybody, uh, every like aspiring voice actor or impressionist did a reading, you know, like to this day, a lot of people think that Morgan Freeman read the book because an excellent Morgan Freeman impersonator recorded a reading of the book and it's on YouTube. So yeah, like, and like, I mean, that's great for you. Yeah. It, so it just became like this weird sort of staple of the culture that got referenced in all these different ways. You know, like there was a New Yorker cartoon that riffed on it and, you know, like, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's just kind of it's, a, it's a, a kids book for adults that is a classic in the parenting if that's the genre that it falls under. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you a business question. Uh when the pre-order numbers started to come in or whatever, I guess they didn't come in, but when yeah. you started to see in the pre-order phase of the book's life that it was hitting number 1 and was taking on this crazy life of its own, what did you do or what did Johnny Temple do at Akashic if anything to prepare like, did you, did you guys start to think like, wow, we should maybe invest in marketing or we should like, we should do an event at the New York public library to really launch this because it's got obviously a lot of stickiness, right? Like, did you make bolder or 
unconventional business decisions around marketing and PR in the pre-order phase based on the numbers you were seeing? Um, some things that stand out in my memory are being concerned that we would run out of books and having a meeting where we went to Consortium, which was which is the distributor for Akashic and for a lot of independent publishers, to really sit with them face to face and be like, look, like, prove to us that you can handle this and are not going to fuck it up. Like, talk us through every aspect of this. You met with them in person? Yeah. You did? Yeah. In New York? In New York. Johnny and I went in. And this was in the phase where people were still making offers on the book. And... It's not that we were dangling that over their heads, but there was an intimation that if they didn't give us good answers, you know, maybe we would leave or, or something, you know, sell the rights to Random House, you know, not that we ever, again, really wanted to do that. But, um, you know, and, and they were like, look, uh, this was, a, I think, a year after that book uh, was called it was it was a really little book that unexpectedly won the Pulitzer, and it was a consortium title. Paul Harding, I think, was the guy, Tinder or Tinker or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, and they, they sort of cited that, and they were like, look, that was a tiny press. It blew up out of nowhere. Here's what we did. Uh, we never ran out of books. There was never a supply problem. We've got more lead time. We're out in front of this. This is our number one priority. We But consortium is just the distributor. Yeah. Who's the printer? Like, who's making Well, who's I mean, the, the-, the printer is just somebody, you know, contracted by Akashic overseas somewhere to actually print the physical books. The distributor is is really the person who's got to, you know... Get them where they need to get go. Get them where they need to but go. But you've got to be telling the printer, like, hey, we need to up our order. Oh, yeah. I mean, we... By the time the book was published, we were in our fourth or fifth printing. Um, so there was kind of a constant flow of books. So just we were... Just based on just speculation? Pretty much, yeah. Um... I mean, you know, we, we, we had some idea, you know, um, of, of what those pre-orders might add up to. We at least had sort of a reasonable floor, you know, um, enough to feel like there wasn't going to be a cash flow problem and there wasn't going to be, um, you know, we, we, that we weren't going to, like, go broke because we printed too many books. I remember at the time, it's funny, I haven't thought about this stuff on this level in a very long time. And I'm remembering that one thing I thought about a lot at that time was how in like the 60s, a hit record would often bankrupt the tiny label that put it out because they'd have this unexpected demand. They'd bust their asses to meet that demand. They'd leverage themselves. The, the money wouldn't come in quickly enough to pay the, you know, the record pressing plant and that, you know, like things would just get fucked up and it would end up going from like a sustainable sort of small ball business model to guys who were suddenly playing in a much bigger arena and couldn't and were leveraged and were bankrupt, you know? Right. And I, I remember thinking a lot about that. Like, that's what I don't want to happen. I'm thinking of like FedEx. Isn't there like a FedEx commercial? There's like many commercials where that happens, where it's like a small business. Yeah. Suddenly takes off and they can't handle scale. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that, you know, that occurred to me, certainly. Did you, um, did you do things like... Obviously, you did things that made it so that it worked, like Consortium got the job done. Yeah. The printer got the job done. You were able to get books out. Yeah. It worked. It all worked. And, you know, it didn't hurt that we were making all of these foreign rights deals, which were, which was, you know, ready cash. Um, How many countries has the book sold in? Like 40 languages, something like that. And does it, does the book connect 
in foreign countries as well as it does here at home in like the states in North America? For the most part, it has. Um, I mean, we we've we've done very well in the English speaking world. Certainly, it was a big hit in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand, Canada. It's done very well in France, in Germany, um, in Japan. Um, and also, you know, like also like in Sweden and Norway and, you know, um, I think some of this depends on the, on the translation, the quality of the translation, the choices they make. Um, cause like, does it rhyme? Does it rhyme in French? Right. I think it does. Yeah. I think everybody, I think everybody's version rhymes, you okay. know? Yeah. Um, uh, I think certain languages are probably better for cursing than others, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's done well around the world. Um, we're in the black, I think, on all of those deals. We've earned out the advances that we got paid on on those deals for the most part. Damn. Yeah. That's unbelievable. It is. <laughs> I can barely believe it myself. That's un- yeah, It's just unbelievable. So um, you have the launch party, the Werner Herzog reading, um, the Judah Friedlander reading, and then you go on a media tour. At this point, the book is a thing. Yeah, very I mean, much the so. The culture is starting to really embrace it and... Uh, you're going on the Today Show. Yeah. You did all that stuff. I did all that stuff. And I, I did it sort of nonstop for many months. There was a bit of a like initial period before the book came out when like broadcast television was not sure what to do with me and the book. <laughs> you know, I remember having a, a few sort of like tense phone calls with like segment producers who were like, I just want to make very clear that you can't say fuck on the air, you know, or I will lose my job. Do you understand that? You know? And I mean, the the funny thing is like, I probably do a better job of not inadvertently or accidentally cursing than anybody else because I wrote a book called go the fuck to sleep. And I'm sort of aware of when it's appropriate to say that and when it isn't, but I would fuck with them and be like, yeah, no, I'm fucking totally not going to curse on your fucking show. Like no fucking way. You have my word, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, they, there was a little bit of hesitance locking down the today show was a, was a big deal, you know, and, and kind of like cemented, the book's place in the firmament in a certain kind of way. And then everything else you asked about publicists before we did hire an outside publicist. Um, but I mean, they, they didn't, all they really had to do was, was field calls. You know, they didn't really have to go and That's get That's a publicist dream, right? It now. really is. Yeah. They look great. Yeah. And it took us months to be like, did they do anything? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. But well, they, you know, they handled all the calls and all the, yeah. the, the logistics that you otherwise would have. Yeah. Had. And, the, and the one thing that they did do and did expertly was when the Today Show was wavering a little bit, they sort of leveraged other interest and got it locked in. Oh. You know what I mean? Well, there you go. So in and of itself that paid, that's, that paid their rate right that's there. enough yeah uh, yeah because yeah, i guess i'm interested in, i mean so much of this from my perspective you can you know feel free to disagree so much of this is just a little bit magic absolutely it's a it's like whoa like you know you got to just feel like there's some cosmic thing that happened here yeah um, but yeah. you also had certain experiences like going on the today show or having sam jackson go on letterman like do you have a sense of scale in terms of how many copies a Today Show appearance moved or when Sam Jack? I guess it's, it's so hard to track the numbers. It's very hard to tell, particularly when you're already at number one before that happens. Right. So there's nowhere to go. So it's it's hard to say quantitatively what that does. Um, I mean, it certainly does something. It certainly does a lot. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's, I mean, at, by the time the book came out, we could look at our like week over week numbers. I was going to say, when's the first time you saw numbers? Um, Concrete numbers. The first, the first week that the book came out, and and it's no longer a pre-sale book that BookScan won't give you numbers on. It's a it's a book that's out, and then you can get you know fairly accurate numbers. And so, what was the first week? I think the first week was like seventy thousand or something like that. Jesus, yeah, which is excellent. It is, and of course, BookScan doesn't track all sales because there are accounts that are not BookScan stores. You know. Uh, for example, if your book is in Urban Outfitters or various kinds of gift shops, it's, it's not going to show up. Yeah, not in Urban Outfitters. We didn't get Urban Outfitters, but a lot of other sort of like non-traditional spaces. They came to you and ordered books to just put on on display, or do you have to go out and like? Is there channels for publishers to try to solicit those people? Yeah, there are. I mean, they're traditional channels. We didn't. I mean, your your sales, your like regional sales reps go to all those places. Often those places say no. In this case, those places said yes. Like there's a big West Coast chain of gift stores whose name escapes me. But like they took and continue to take like a lot of books. Um, but those books probably aren't showing up on BookScan. Did you, you know? do, did you do, especially in the run up when oh, there's all this sense of anticipation and like, holy shit, you know, is, is happening. Did you and Johnny and the team at Akashic do market research on children's books. Like you mentioned Goodnight Moon, which I, I'm a father. I've read that book I mean, I, four million I'm times. Like, I'm like, what is it even? Right. Like, it's not even like that doesn't even have any wit to it. You know, like, no, <laughs> but I mean, everybody gets it. Yeah. It's like a rite of passage. Are you looking at those kinds of books? Do you have a sense of like what, where the wild things are has sold over its lifetime? No, I have no but idea. But it's gotta be millions and millions yeah, of copies. It's, it's gotta be. Um, no, I don't, I, I mean, we were, we were sort of so singularly focused on what we had to get done that I don't remember, I don't remember really looking that hard at what those books had done or how they'd done it. You know, also most of them were, were old, like most of the things that are considered those perennials, those like those classics, um, you know, it's not usually in the moment that you are able to anoint those things. So it didn't seem, I think, particularly useful to try to figure out how a book that came out 60 years ago became a classic because it's such a different landscape, you know? Um, yeah, I think we were mostly just focused on, like, the various things we had to do. Sure. So, you, you mean 70,000 copies out of the gate, you had to be pleased? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That, did it meet expectations, I guess, is the question. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, again, like, expectations were so vague and opaque and impossible to even pin down for myself. I remember that we were hoping to make the New York Times bestseller list, you know, but we, I mean, we, we didn't really know if we would. And then the news broke. I read on Twitter that the book was going to debut at number one on the, on the list. Um, so for in, children's books, no, uh, the list that we were on was the miscellaneous, it's something it's called something like advice how to and miscellaneous oh, um because it's not a children's book <laughs> yeah exactly and, and and that list actually turns out to be probably the hardest list to crack because it's shorter it's only 10 books instead of 15 or 20 or 25 and a lot of big books end up in that category um it's much harder to get on that list than on like the general nonfiction list for example um so in most cases whatever expectations i might have had ended up sort of just being shattered because, you know, yeah, we made the list. We're at number one on the list, you know. And so the, then what do you do? Do you just like 
start traveling the world? I mean, like, I don't even know how, how do you respond to that level of success that happens that unexpectedly and quickly? Um, yeah, I just, I just really kept my nose to the grindstone. Like I was doing, I was doing interviews all day, every day by phone in person. I was doing a good amount of traveling, um, other opportunities that sort of emerged in the wake of that book. I tried to exploit as fully as I could, you know, um, I mentioned that we had sold the movie rights. Who bought the movie rights? Um, Fox 2000. Okay. Um, but you know, there also seemed to be a way to thread the needle and sell a TV show that was sort of as close to the book as possible without infringing on the rights we had already sold. So I sold a TV show and, and got paid to write a pilot that didn't end up getting made. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting, like, I'd been in the industry for, you know, for like 10 years almost at that point. So I'd done a lot of public speaking. I'd done a lot of interviews. I was conversant with how media works, how interviews work, um, how long an answer should be. Um, I had ideas about marketing and strategy, um, you know, and I tried to bring all that to bear. Um, and I was lucky enough to be with Akashic where I was in those conversations and they were not happening over my head. They weren't happening in some, you know, marketing meeting that I was going to hear the results of. If I wanted to be in that meeting, which I did, I was in the meeting. Um, if I wanted to call a meeting, the thing about Akashic is that they were small enough to be very nimble. So if I had an idea, I could get on the phone with Johnny and the managing editor, Ibrahim, and like hash it out and come out of that call with a plan of action that we immediately put into play. Um, so the, 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 the relative smallness of Akashic in many ways was a huge advantage because if, if something occurred or some problem reared its head, we were on it, you know, immediately. Um, I mean, a few years ago, for example, um, there was some glitch in Amazon's algorithm and suddenly the book was not selling what we had come to expect it to sell in a week. And it was not ranked where we, in the sort of bracket that we had come to expect what's the bracket it's usually on amazon somewhere in the in the one or two hundreds you know what i mean it's it's somewhere between like 150 and and 250 you know maybe a little lower maybe a little higher but like somewhere in there you know so if it's suddenly at 700 unless it's late august that's normal in late august for various reasons that i won't bore you with but it's like holy shit like Something's going on. And it turned out that there was some weird glitch in the algorithm, and suddenly the book wasn't coming up in the search results the way that it should have, which is a huge problem. So who do you call? You try to figure out how to talk to Amazon. Jeff which, Bezos? You yeah. Have, can you talk to Jeff at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Would I want to? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Wherever he is. You know, but it's like we had to, you know, it's like, okay. I mean, it, it ended up taking weeks to fix, but at least I knew that everybody was trying their hardest as soon as possible, as soon as we sort of figured that out. You know what I mean? Whereas, who knows if that would have been the case else, elsewhere. I wouldn't have had access to the data I needed to make sure that there was even a problem. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, I think, too, like what I mean, when I'm hearing you tell like this part of the story, what occurs to me is that the success that this particular book had, while there is some magic to it, like a lot of magic. I think that, and this is the case, not just for your book, but for any book or piece of art or culture that makes its way out into the world and connects. 
there's got to be something cosmic happening for the culture to embrace it yeah. and to share it and to feel a sense of um, shared identity and ownership and all the stuff that happens when we connect to a piece of art. That happened for you. But I think another valuable thing to consider or a valuable lesson to consider is the fact that, you know, this wasn't just something that fell out of the sky. You had been working in this business as a writer, doing interviews, writing, publishing, meeting people, hustling. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah. there was a foundation laid so that when this thing, this cosmic thing happened, you were ready for it. Yeah. I, I think I would certainly like to think that that is the case. And I do feel like that is the case. Um, if I'd been a, a rookie and not a writer and new to this entire industry, the learning curve would have been unsurmountable, I think, insurmountable. Um, and I also was in a position to capitalize on this in other ways that had nothing directly to do with the book. Um, like what? Like selling a, a variety of other projects, um, you know, not just sort of the TV show that was adjacent to the book or the film rights, but like my next novel. And I did a two book deal for a couple of supernatural thrillers that I was going to write for Harper Collins. And, you know, there was this sense that as a guy who had sort of hit the zeitgeist once, I could perhaps do it again. And I was able to sort of take advantage of that belief. And I continue to be able to take advantage of that belief. Um, the fact that a publisher can slap number one New York Times bestselling author on the cover of whatever I do is an asset. When I go to pitch a TV show or a movie, even now, nine years later, whatever, everybody has an association. And, you know, most of what I do is not directly or even indirectly related, um, but it's still a very helpful thing. And it's still the thing that, you know, my manager will introduce me via when we're about to like sit down and pitch a TV show. It's like, you know, you may know Adam from his worldwide blah, 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 blah. And they're like, you know, there's that spark of recognition, that dim, you know, idea that this guy did something. <laughs> no, that no was especially successful. in Hollywood, especially in Hollywood. But yeah, um, it's not nothing. The other thing, too, is that people have a fond association with you and with go to fuck it brings a smile to people's faces yeah that counts yeah. for something yeah no it does it's like it it's does. like you know the guy who wrote uh why am i i'm blanking on the on uh what's his name the guy who wrote sophie's choice uh who wrote that well, styron styron yeah, yeah, yeah styron so i'm just like I, you know that's a book that obviously people have a connection to but <laughs> right it's not gonna it's not gonna warm the cockles in like a pitch <laughs> meeting you know like, yeah, that's great yeah that's correct um so that yeah, that has currency but i guess like have you experienced that there is, I guess there is some crossover, you know, you wrote a, a book that took off. That's like this weird kind of, you know, genre busting kids book for adults, like it hard to, hard to categorize. Mm -hmm. And then you're writing thrillers, which is adult genre fiction, or you're trying to sell, I guess, well, the TV show was adjacent to the book. But I guess my question is when you're working creatively in veins that are at a remove from this particular book and the demographic that it targets, there is some carryover in terms of the currency. At least in the selling process. On an audience level, not so much. Like, I remember when I published my first novel after Go the Fuck to Sleep, which was a book called Rage is Back um, in 2013. Um, 
I sort of thought that maybe that I'd literary s- fiction. Literary fiction. I sort of thought that like maybe I'd sell a billion copies because I was the guy who wrote "Go the Fuck to Sleep." It turns out that interest in an obscene fake children's book does not carry over to interest in, um, a, you know, like a like a magic realist graffiti revenge novel. You know, maybe a tiny little bit. Maybe I get a few looks from people. Maybe I get a little more review coverage or something. But you know, I remember like advertising kind of posting something about that book on the go the fuck to sleep facebook page which was a big thing at the time and being like yo my new book here it is like here's jizza from the wu-tang clan talking <laughs> about it even because he re- he read part of the audiobook right and like you know nah people are like cool like <laughs> okay <laughs> you know like so let's let's walk backwards for a second so you have this explosive success with go the fuck to sleep you're financially comfortable which, for somebody who has an interest in writing literary fiction, is sort of the dream. You're like, look, I don't need this to sell a bajillion copies. I can actually be creative and make art that I really want to make. Mm-hmm. And I, can, I don't have to be thinking necessarily about market outcomes in a really intense way. Um, that's, I think, a good place to be. But I'm interested in the decision you made to go back to literary fiction after having this success. I think the temptation would have been well, geez, maybe I can just keep trying to do kids' books for adults or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. You have to start thinking about your audience and what's working and, like, like take us through the decision-making process about what to do next after Go the Fuck to Sleep goes out and sells a, you know, how many how many copies has it sold to date? Three million. Okay. Um, well, you know, I... I'm a I'm sort of a, a polymath as it turns out when it comes to to writing. There are a lot of things that I enjoy that I find interesting that can capture my imagination. So previous to Go the Fuck to Sleep, I had pretty much been in one lane and I had always, you know, for ten years, at at any point I was working on a novel, you know, working on a piece of long form literary fiction. Um about a year before Go the Fuck to Sleep came out, when the publishing industry took a huge downturn and it became increasingly clear that making a living as a novelist was going to be difficult, I began to think about branching out into other interests for both practical and creative reasons. Um, creative reasons in the sense that it was going to be hard to even keep publishing novels if one of them didn't break through. You know, that if I won awards and got good reviews but didn't sell a lot of copies, I was not going to get advances that I could live on or raise a family on. So I started thinking about screenwriting, which is always something I'd wanted to do and been interested in doing but had never really attempted. Um, I had optioned a novel to a director a couple of years earlier. He and I had become friendly. He basically was like, write me something that I can make for a low budget with this actor and this actor who are friends of mine that we can shoot in two weeks. So I, you know, I, I had sort of started down that path of screenwriting. Um, and it, do you mind saying who the director is? Yeah. The director is a guy named Adam Bala Lowe. Um, he optioned a book of mine called angry black white boy, which was a satire about race and whiteness and hip hop that I published in 2005, which before go the fuck to sleep was probably the thing I was best known for. Um, it actually did sell quite well. Um, largely because a lot of people began teaching it um, as as sort of hip-hop studies proliferated and people looked for a book that could grapple with some of the complexities of race and whiteness and hip-hop 
they began teaching that book. And I know a lot of those folks because, as you said earlier, I'm, I'm in that hip-hop world, and I have been for a long time. And that book got me on the lecture circuit, so I was doing a lot of public speaking around it. I was going to a lot of universities and talking to you know, general audiences, but also classes where the book was being taught, etc. So this guy optioned the book. He and I became friends. Um, so, I mean, after Go the Fuck to Sleep came out, I just sort of... I had all these sort of new lanes that were somewhat open to me and I just kind of, I just kind of embraced them all. So it had never really occurred to me to want to do supernatural thrillers, but every once in a while that industry decides it needs an infusion of literary writers to supplement the kind of genre folks who dominate that industry who are like great with plot, but maybe not as good at prose. And they're hoping that you know, and once once in a while, somebody does successfully cross over and a literary writer does a really successful genre book um, like, you know, Justin Cronin, I think, is a guy who who sort of crossed from one to the other. So there's always sort of an appetite for that. And I'd been in talks about doing that. But after Go the Fuck to Sleep came out, they really wanted me to do it. So I'm like, OK, fuck it. Let me do it. Let me figure like, out how, how to did you even how do those talks even initiate? They say, we want you to pitch us. Like, do you pitch or do you write the full novel? Um, in that case, I wrote some sample pages. And they said, okay, yeah. this, this has a promise. Yeah, exactly. Do you, did, did you have a sense of the actual architecture of the larger story? Yeah, a, a, a limited amount. Uh, I mean, like, like, a, like a bare bones version. Enough yeah. to get started. Enough to get started. Okay. Um, I knew who the characters were. I knew the conceit, sort of the world I was building. Um, but, you know, I guess a lot of what I've done since Go the Fuck to Sleep that I wasn't doing before is, is falls under the category of humor writing of various sorts. Um, I've done two middle grade series, one with Alan Zweibel, the other with Craig Robinson. I've written two straight up humor books with, with Alan and Dave Barry. Um, you know, and all of that is, is super fun and, and it's kind of light work for me. And it's like very enjoyable and not very taxing. And um, I enjoy collaborating with all of those folks, but I wasn't going to leave literary writing behind either, because to me, that's at the core. That's how I still look at myself as as a novelist. Interesting. You know? I was going to say um, that's it. you see yourself from an from a sense of personal identity, creative identity, as a writer of literary fiction primarily. Yeah, I, I think I do as a, as a novelist, specifically as a novelist, as somebody who who was sort of trained in that form. Um, but, it, but, it, you know, partly that's because that's in my mind, the, the hardest thing to do with the most pressure and the highest stakes, because, you know, that's like literature, you know, and I, and I find also that I, I'm in kind of a like train high race, low mind state, like compared to the rigors of writing a novel, everything else feels like light work. So when I started writing more screenplays, it felt relatively easy, you right, know, right. um, relatively contained, not something that was going to sprawl out and take me a year, two years, three years to do. Well, you talk about the stakes of writing fiction. Like it's not only the most like long form literary fiction, uh, or a novel. It takes a long time. Yeah. It's really hard to make any money at it. It really is. Like yeah. the pressure's just all there. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, how do you do it? There's no real reason to do it unless you really love it and want to do it and have something to say in that and that and it can only be said in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, but meanwhile, you know, doors opened. I, I'm, you know, like, I mean, I met Alan Zweibel 
because we were both at a literary festival together and he just had a grandkid and somebody had sent him go the fuck to sleep. So he wanted to meet me and we ended up having dinner and hitting it off and writing at this point five books together. You know what I mean? So like in some sense, it wouldn't have happened without go the fuck to sleep because he wouldn't have known who the fuck I was. Right, right. Um, you know, but uh, but the screenwriting stuff sort of started to take off also and very much independently of this. Um, and I remember that feeling really good because so like the, the, the screenplay that I mentioned that I wrote for Adam Bala Lowe, I applied for the Sundance Screenwriters Lab with it and I got in. Oh, no shit. And that felt really good because it was demonstrably not related to any of this other stuff. Like they didn't give a shit if I'd written Go the Fuck to Sleep. They just thought I'd written a, a pretty good screenplay. That was it. So you submitted it the same way anybody else submitted yeah. You put it, you didn't have anybody like, you know, yeah, the, no. like Sam Jackson didn't say, Hey, <laughs> not no. to my knowledge. Not yeah. to your knowledge. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I remember feeling just really gratified when I got in because, you know, on one hand you're happy for all these opportunities, but there's also something really nice about getting something that, you know, is just on the merits and not related to some sense of your success or, you know, your, the, the sudden clout that your name might wield in some small way um and so i went to sundance with that and i continued to write screenplays um so so for people listening you get into the sundance lab as a screenwriter you get the you fly out there to utah yeah you basically get to workshop and work on your screenplay in the company of in the company of very established and generous screenwriters who are there to read your thing and mentor you and give you notes. It's like a year of grad school in five days, basically. Who did you get to work with? Um, I worked with Walter Mosley. I worked with um, Lisa Choladenko. I worked with uh, Howard Rodman. I worked with... Um, a couple people whose names I'm blanking on. I just uh, I, I worked with um, Scott Frank, um, Michelle Satter, who runs the program. Um, yeah, I mean, in, incredibly helpful and 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 I also met this cadre of up and coming writers and directors. Um, typically, in the screenwriting lab, most of the writers are also planning to direct their first feature. Um, I was, I think, maybe the only one who wasn't either a director or one half of a writer-director team. Um, but, you know, like I was in there with Ryan Coogler, you know, when he was working on Fruitvale Station. I met him that week. No shit. Yeah. Um, and, and several other people who've gone on to make movies as well. Um, so, that yeah, that was sort of my entree into that that world. Um, did, the, did the screenplay that you wrote ever get made? No, that has not been made. Are you are you upset about it, or do you feel like you got what you need? I mean, you obviously got an education from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because one of the one of the things that I've had to realize and sort of pivot into and try to be good with in in the world of screenwriting and TV writing is that a lot of the work you do ends up in a drawer somewhere and never sees the light of day. And I I find that incredibly frustrating because you know. On the book side of things, I've been doing it long enough and I have enough relationships and confidence and a track record to know that if I want a book to be published badly enough, I can get it published, you know, hopefully on its merits. <laughs> right. But, you know, like I, I don't embark on a novel with that sense that it's possible that this will never 
be published if I want it to be published. Whereas with TV and screenwriting stuff, it's always a low percentage play. Um, and at any time, uh, unless you're working under very specific circumstances, there are no guarantees that, that the thing is going to make it to the air or make it to the screen. Um, but I say that to say that movie never got made, but I still like the script and I, I keep kind of a constant awareness of all my projects and, and where they are and what's active and what's not active and what nobody has and what somebody has. You got a spreadsheet or what do you got? A mental spreadsheet, yeah. you know? Um, and like if certain things break certain ways and certain projects do get made, I know that I'll have the opportunity to open up that drawer and set up three or four things that have been lying dormant for six months or, or six years. Well, you never know. You never know. Like some, you know, that screenplay could be sitting dormant and at some point, you know, it might connect with somebody or the timing yeah. might be right. Yeah. Or more likely a script that I write gets made and suddenly people are calling my agent and they're like, what does Adam have? Right. You know, that's probably how it goes. Funny. You should ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got a whole drawer full of stuff for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I'm I'm almost to the finish line with a a script of mine right now. Like I think it's very close to coming together in terms of like actually getting made. Um, what kind of what kind of uh, movie is it? It's kind of a a, a a a big heist con type of movie. Okay, it's called The Handler. Man, you really are a polymath when it, like you're doing all sorts of different stuff. Yeah, I, I do, and and it's funny because the one movie of mine that has been made is very very different than that. You know, which um, is it's called Barry. And it's uh, it's a feature about 21-year-old Barack Obama's first semester in New York City in 1981 when he transferred to Columbia University from Occidental. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, like on the surface, the one has nothing to do with the other. You'd, you'd have to really take a deep dive to understand how the, the DNA of all of these various projects from Go the Fuck to Sleep to Barry to this script to the literary novels, like – is connected. Do, do, do you know how it's connected? Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what's the, what is it? Is there a way to is there a way to encapsulate it? It's a sensibility that is in large part derived from hip hop. To take it all the way back to my initial forays into language as a as a poet and an MC at the age of you know ten. Um, there's a sense of wordplay. There's a sense of speaking truth to power. There's a sense of Collage. There's a sense of the dynamics of obscuring or revealing sources and samples. And um, there's a sense of rhythm and there's a sense of a political worldview. And all of these things in many ways derive from the artistic pillars of that art form. Um, of of hip-hop. Of hip-hop, yeah. And not just rap music, but um, the ethos of graffiti writing, the ethos of b-boying or breakdancing like there's a kind of there's a kind of uh set of, of of artistic principles that underwrites and connects all of those forms um that also i think runs through all my work in one way or another um and uh yeah i mean it, it's it's not necessarily very obvious but the way that i think is definitely informed by by that well um, let's, let's talk about that like you're a kid from boston mm-hmm uh, Jewish guy. Yeah. And you get into hip hop at a, sounds like at a young age. Yeah. Like what was the, what was the, what was the entry like? Um, 
you know, this is maybe 1985, 86, 87. So hip hop is still in many ways very much below the radar, the mainstream radar. You know, Run DMC is selling millions of records, but hip hop is not on the radio. Hip hop is very contentious. A lot of people don't think it's music. Um, we're not yet in the full early 90s culture wars of hip hop where there's censorship, where there's C. Dolores Tucker, where there's, you know, Calvin Butts steamrolling over CDs on the streets of Harlem because it's a, a menace to the values of the community and all that shit. We're not quite there yet, but it's also far from accepted and it's um, unclear to anybody how influential it already is or will become. I was drawn to it because it was incredibly exciting and dynamic. And, and transgressive. And transgressive, and there was a a level of a level of communication that 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 was happening in that music that was unmatched by any other music. Like you can simply convey more information, rhyming eighteen, you know, sixteen bars than you than you're going to get in a rock song. So there was that piece of it, but also and just as importantly, um, I was a kid who was already at that early age, sort of invested in ideas of 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 fairness or justice or something you know why um i think because i was raised to be in part um and in part because i think every kid has a sense i mean what do kids say all the time they say it's not fair right and that's a, a personal and inward looking and selfish statement when it begins right it's not fair that my sister got more ice cream than me but it's also a way of looking at the world that can turn outward and become about unfairness writ large and unfairness between different groups of people. And if you're, you know, I grew up in Boston, which is a very segregated city, but also a city that's constantly dislocating its arm, trying to pat itself on the back for how progressive it is politically. Right. And I think I saw the fissures in that very early. I saw that there was some level of bullshit going on. Um, and, I wanted to learn more and and hip hop was kind of cresting into this overt political subject matter around that time. You know, by 1988, Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and Stetsasonic and N.W.A. Um, were uh, literally making songs about like Eurocentricity in the educational system and how history was taught in the schools. You know, Chuck D was talking about Joanne Chesimard and Louis Farrakhan and it was incumbent on you as the listener to go find out who those people were. Because hip-hop was this – it was this uh, – you couldn't be a passive participant. Like you couldn't just be a fan. Like if you listened to hip-hop, it was almost an unspoken fact that you were going to want to participate. You were going to want to rap or DJ or breakdance or beatbox or write graffiti or something. But also it was incumbent on you to figure out what everybody was talking about. At least that's how I felt. So – if Chuck G, if Chuck D mentioned Joanne Chesimard or Soul on Ice, I was instantly going to go try to figure out who and what those things were. And in a lot of cases, I could just go to my father's bookshelf because my father is a journalist, had been since the 60s. Writing, so, writing for who? Um, writing initially for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. And then he got a job at the Boston Globe where he spent 38 years and retired a couple of years ago. Um, mostly an editor. Uh, started as a reporter, but then became the front page editor. And as a guy with like a steel trap memory for everything that happened during the 40 plus years, he was in a newsroom. You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, like, um, 
so a lot a lot of that stuff was was not far from my grasp, but the stuff that wasn't, I went and and, and looked into. You know, um, were, you, were your parents encouraging you? Because I know a lot of parents at the time. I remember having like Eric B and Rakim uh, cassettes. Yeah, I remember Two Live Crew was yeah. like very you know yeah, like yeah, for yeah. kids of a certain age, boys especially. Yeah, I remember that time. I remember Dana Dane. Yep, I remember. This is all '88 and NWA. Yeah. But I mean, I'm a kid in Indiana at yeah. that point. I'm like, yeah. what am I in the movie breaking? Yeah. Like all this stuff, this culture was just starting to kind of percolate up, but it was connecting mm-hmm. and it was connecting in unexpected places. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having a dad who's the front page editor of the Boston Globe and who is uh, culturally aware and, you know, uh, well read, I would mm-hmm. imagine, you know? Yeah. Um, they see their young son responding to this hip hop music. Were they encouraging you to. Uh, take it seriously as opposed to a lot of parents who I think were like, what is this? Turn it off. Turn it off. They're saying things that you shouldn't be hearing. They were encouraging. Um, I think partly because they could see the explicit connection in my mind between this music and an emerging sense of politics and activism. And, you know, my father took me to go see KRS-One lecture at Harvard University in 1989, which was a mind-blowing thing. Like, the idea that a rapper was going to be invited to Harvard was bananas, you know? That was like a huge victory for the entire culture, it felt like. Um, yeah, the only aspect of it that troubled them was that um, I started hanging out with a lot of older people. And, you know, that that just, you know, they were like, is Adam safe? Like, what's Adam doing? But Like, what kind of people are you hanging out with? I mean, you know, I, I, I happened to get to high school and all of the, like, hip-hop cats were like seniors and I was a freshman. Okay. So I suddenly, you know, just, just that. Um, and I, I, I began to be mentored very heavily as a freshman by a, a teacher at my high school who to this day is a very good friend of mine and, and, and really took me under his wing, you know, but they were like, why is Adam hanging out with, with, you know, Dr. Willis? Like, is this okay? And, you know, for the most part, they were worried about the wrong things. Like I was hanging out with a lot of unsavory characters, but it wasn't those guys, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and all these cats were, were, for the most part, black and older, but they were like, welcome in my home. And, and we all trooped down to the basement where I'd saved, up, uh, saved enough money to buy turntables and, you know, just made music, you know. Um, and it was real, you know, and, and, and hip hop also made you an archaeologist, not just politically, but musically, right? So if you took it seriously, everything that's being sampled, you're trying to figure out what that music is. So it leads you into jazz and it leads you into understanding like almost the entire history of like, you know, post-war American music. It's collage art. Yeah, um, exactly. So, you know, the sensibility and the politics and everything that I had around that. And I was rapping and I was DJing and I was writing graffiti and all of these things. You wanted to be a rapper. Yeah, Absolutely. What what is it like to be a white Jewish guy trying to, you know, who's just an, like it's you can hear it now, like 100 percent earnestly enthusiastic about this music and this culture. You know, you go try to, like, express this to um, a bunch of black kids in your school where they're like, what the fuck is this? Guy? Was it was there any like pushback? Most of the pushback came from other white kids, because when you cross away from the presumed center in terms of privilege, in terms of what uh, you're supposed to want and into an area that's supposed to be marginal, the people in that center get anxious and scornful. 
Um, the, the, the thing about hip hop is that in large part, it, it's always been like show and prove. So if you have skills, those skills will be accepted no matter what you look like. And I had skills. Um, you were a good rapper. Yeah. Um, but also I had, I had some level of sense about me and I wasn't, you know, I, I, I was very earnest and, and probably embarrassing in the ways that I wanted to prove how much I knew and how down I was. Because, again, this is an era of Malcolm X hats and of having to know a good amount of, like, you know, supreme mathematics and, 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 and about the 5% nation of Islam and the gods and earths and a lot of esoteric, you know, black power thinkers and philosophers and also all of this musical history and knowledge like you were expected to come in with all of that and i was a little overly earnest in proving how much of that i knew but that was really about also trying to grapple with white privilege and figure out how to um how to be on the side of what was right even if you were born into the side of what was problematic and and wrong um but you know for the most part um most of my most of my best friends during that time were were people from from hip hop and and black kids. Um, you went to a pretty integrated high school. It sounds like not as integrated as it could have been. Yeah. Um, my high school was in the suburbs, so it was a a feeder school for the Metco program, which was how Boston integrated its schools in 1973. Um, and you know, people were riding in the streets over school integration in Boston, right? Legendarily. Um, and the way they did it was largely through this kind of unidirectional form of integration where kids from Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, the inner city, were bused to suburban and largely white schools. Nobody seemed to suggest too much busing of these white kids into the inner city. Um, so, I mean, there, there, were, there were black kids who lived in my town, certainly. What town was this? Newton. Okay. Newton, Massachusetts. Um, Boston, and then to the west of that is Brookline, and then, and then Newton. So it's on the... It's 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 part of the Boston metro area. Like you can take the T uh, into Boston and stuff, but it's a suburb um, and a big suburb. I mean, Newton's probably like one hundred and twenty thousand people or something. Two big high schools, all of that. Um, but a lot of the kids at my high school who were black were coming from Boston. Um, so, you know, in, in retrospect, yeah, it was a very people moved to Newton for the public school systems. So when I look back, I got a really good education there, and the schools were actually quite diverse. More so than I think I realized at the time because I was in kind of a black-white paradigm. But, you know, I went to school with, with a lot of Chinese kids and a lot of Iranian kids and a lot of Jewish kids and also a lot of, um, you know, Irish kids and a lot of uh, – yeah, it was, it was actually a pretty good mix. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm bouncing it off my own experience. Like I went to a big public school. There was like 700 kids in my class in high school. Yeah. Um, which isn't as big as it could be, but it's big. Yeah. I want to say there were like, you could count the number of people of color on like a couple, you know, two hands. Mm. So even if I were, and I guess in junior high was when I was listening to hip hop, um, you know, the, the hip hop era that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. I did not have like anything to bounce it off of. Right. Except my other like white bread Midwestern buddies. Yeah. You know, so that had to have been a factor for you. Yeah, no, hip hop hip hop connected with with my reality in a in a pretty seamless way. Um a lot of what was being talked about on these records, I really felt like, yeah, that's that's what I do, you know? I mean, 
people like Large Professor. Had, there was a, a main source song called Just Hanging Out. And I remember listening to that and being like, yo, that's this is all the shit we do, you know? <laughs> um, but also the, the, the politics and the hip-hop dislocated whiteness from its presumed position of, of normality and centrality. It made it subjective. It made you have to think very hard about whether you had permission to participate and what it meant to maintain that permission. Um, and the 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 dynamics of of every aspect of your life right like i thought about all that shit on a constant basis Damn. um yeah and it also made you separate the personal from the political right it's like okay so you know the gods and earths believe that the white man is the devil um but yet my friend over here and my friend over here i've been crashing on their couch for three days now <laughs> and they're five percenters they're gods you know so like what does that mean? Like, how, how do you how do you how do you balance the the rhetoric and the interpersonal, you know, and, and all of these things? I mean, it was it was complex stuff, but um, it's a good education. It's a really good education. Yeah. What was your rap name? Oh, I've had a lot over the years. Give me um, some. Most recently, Kodiak Brinks. You still rapping? Well, yeah, from time to time. Um, my daughter's a, a rapper now, so I do a lot of um, coaching and helping her. Um, What's her rap name? Let's plug her. The Jazz Wolf. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How old is she? She's 11. That's it. She's okay. nice with it. Yeah. There was a, a, a story on This American Life this summer about me and her and her rapping, which folks can check out if they're so inclined. Okay. Um, and actually, um, yeah, she's released some music. Like uh, my friend DJ Frayne, who's one of the most talented producers I've ever met, is an L.A. guy. He put her on a 45 that he released last year. Uh, called Christmas at the Iceberg. Um, it's like a kind of electro-funk Christmas song that she has a, a little cameo on. Um, and actually, there's going to be a 45 released for Record Store Day by the audiobook publisher for the new book, Fuck Now There Are Two, now there are two of You. They're putting out a 45 of Larry David reading the book. <laughs> you, got Larry, you got Larry to do it. Larry's doing it, yeah. Did you get to meet him? I actually never I didn't because he recorded it here and I was on the East Coast at the time and I like couldn't get away. Yeah. I will at some point. Um I mostly got him through Alan Zweibel, who's his buddy. Um, you know. Larry's quote was great. He was like, I did it as a favor to Adam Mansback, who I've never met and don't know, which is so like me. <laughs> <laughs> um but the B side of that forty five, it will be a split forty five with Larry David reading Go the uh, reading Fuck Now They're Two You on one side. And the Jazz Wolf's new song on the other side. That's great. Which is amazing. And I haven't told her yet because I, I haven't seen her in a couple of days because I've been here. But, uh, yeah, sometimes I take a, like a, a, a sort of look at her life from 20,000 feet and I'm like, homie, do you understand like how wild your life is? Like you're 11 years old and you're about to drop a, a joint 45 with Larry David. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. What, what the fuck is going on? Life is crazy, man. It kind of is. So let's talk about the sequel. Uh, you know, like the thought process around writing a sequel, where you, do you have hesitation? You've obviously got a lot of expectations based on how go the fuck to sleep did. Yeah. Like, and then there's also got to be a, like, Enormous incentive, obviously, yeah. to follow up. Like, why not? Yeah, there, you know, there, there's incentive and there is some trepidation because you don't want to, like, run the shit into the ground. You don't want to do something that's lame. You don't want to hurt the brand. Um, 
so I wrote a, I wrote the first sequel, which is called You Have to Fucking Eat, and that came out in 2014. Brian Cranston did the audiobook for that. Um, and, you know, I'd been resistant to writing a sequel for a while because I just, you know, I was like, let me just leave this alone. Um, but it was real. I, I was going through some of those struggles with my kid, and it also seemed like the other sort of existential parental thing the other crisis like not being you know because people would always give me these ideas i go on radio shows and they we got a few ideas for the sequel (laughs) here we go you know and and it like tie your fucking shoes and it's like yeah i'm not gonna like get 14 stanzas out of that that's not but you know there is something primal i think about the failure to get your kid to eat or sleep because it's like you need to do these things to live right why can i not make what does that say about me that i cannot make you do these things um so I did that book and, you know, it, it did it did well. It did what we hoped it would do, um, which was not duplicate Go the Fuck to Sleep, but supplement it, do 10% of what Go the Fuck to Sleep did would have been a big success. And it did more than that. Um, and uh, and, the, and and now the new one, uh, you know, it's it's been it's been five years, more than five years since ne- you have to fucking eat. Um, I've had two kids since then. <laughs> um so if anything, fuck now, there are two of you is an understatement for me. I've got three kids, but I've got two kids under two and a half. Um, and, you know, it, it just it, it felt authentic. You know, it felt like a book that was not forced. But it also felt like maybe a smart book because most people who have one kid have another kid. You already bought Go the Fuck to Sleep for the first baby shower. That's no, a set. Got to bring something for the second one. Right, right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I, I wrote the, I wrote this one. Is it, a, is it, are they both on Akashic? Yeah. All three of these books are on Akashic. Has Akashic ever published a book that's done better than go the fuck to sleep? No, no. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud that Akashic, um, has been sort of able to expand and do what they do in sort of a, a slightly bigger way because of the financial sustenance that they get still from knowing that, you know, they can pencil in a certain number of sales from go the fuck to sleep every quarter and every year. Um, you, but you indirectly have benefited a lot of literary authors who get published by Akashic. Yeah. That's, right? I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but I, it's a nice, it's, a, it's nice to think that that might be the case. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they, they have the, uh, latitude now to take some chances. Yeah. On some works of literary fiction yeah. or whatever it is. I think that's right. And they, you know, and they haven't, they haven't substantively changed their approach. Like they still, they still sort of rock the way that they rock. But yeah, they, they have a, a bit more of a margin um, and a bit of a different rep. And yeah, they can, they can, they can breathe a little more easily and they can hire more staff when they need it. Um and, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's fun for me to work with them. You know, it's fun for me to, at this point, Johnny and I have been having, you know, like weekly conversations about how many books we've sold this week for like almost nine years, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and he's a good friend and, and Ibrahim is a good friend and everybody else there has been there a long time. And the security also of knowing that as long as like Johnny's alive, this publishing house not only will be around but it's not going to change hands, you know, like I've had so many experiences at the big corporate publishers where literally 
by the time the book you sold them comes out, right. the editor who bought it is gone. The right. publicist that you first met is gone. Right. Um, the continuity that Akashic has is really lovely. Yeah, no, um, publishing is super volatile. I don't think a lot of people understand how volatile it is. Yeah. People are always jumping ship. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. You've uh, almost got to to prove that you're sort of like viable, you know. you got to take a different job just to prove that people, that somebody wants you, right, you know. Right. Maybe get like a little salary bump yeah. or whatever it is. But yeah, that's like, but it's frustrating as the, as the writer when like the acquiring editor for your book, you know, you're three months out from the book uh, being published. Yeah. And suddenly they're like, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm changing houses. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Being orphaned at a publishing house is not fun. It's happened to me. Yeah. And it's, it's not fun. So children's book author for adults, literary novelist, thriller writer, screenwriter, TV writer, rapper. What am I missing anything? Um, humor writer, I guess. Humor writer. Um, the, the book that I published a couple of weeks ago is called A Field Guide to the Jewish People. And I wrote it with Dave Barry and Alan Zwy Bell, you know, two heroes of mine really as a kid. You know, Alan was a writer on Saturday Night Live for the first six seasons. He was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He co-created the Gary Shandling show. Um, and Dave Barry, you know, is a fucking American institution, right? This guy has been writing hilarious humor columns and books for literally my entire life. Right. Um, so Dave Barry's Jewish? No. Dave oh. Barry's not Jewish. Dave oh. Barry's wife is Jewish. Okay. This is, of course, the, the first question everybody asks <laughs> about this book. Um, yeah, Dave Barry is, is uh, Jewish by marriage, and they kind of raised their daughter Jewish and stuff. So Dave has, without doubt, spent far more time in synagogues than I have. Right. Um, I mean, anybody who spent like more than two hours in a synagogue in their life has probably spent more time in a synagogue <laughs> than I have, including like a lot of janitors who work at, at uh, you know, synagogues. Right. Um, but, you know, working with them is super fun and doing that book. That book is a sequel to the first book we did together, which is a, a parody of a Passover Haggadah, the, the liturgy that you read at a Passover Seder. We did a, a parody Haggadah called For This We Left Egypt, <laughs> um, which is really fun. And, you know, like running around with those guys is very enjoyable for me. I mean, they're, you know, it's funny. Like when I was, when I was really young, when I was 20, 21, 22, I was a roadie for Elvin Jones, the jazz drummer. Um, the greatest drummer who ever lived, really. John Coltrane's drummer throughout the 60s. Um, I was his roadie. Um, and, you know, I how spent... Did you get, how did you get that? Um, through Andre Willis, the, the mentor I mentioned earlier, who was a, a teacher at my high school, was very plugged into the jazz world. Through him, I met Delphi Omar Salas, who used to come to my high school when he passed through town. He and I got to be friends via Andre. We would argue about jazz and hip-hop because... Like his brother Winton, Delphio took a very conservative uh, stance around hip-hop and whether it was valid and whether it was music. And he and I used to just beef about this all the time. Through him and through Andre, I got the introduction to Elvin and his wife Keiko. And then for the next like six years, I traveled with them while I was in, high, uh, while I was in college, while I was in grad school, um, you know, and... I'd, I'd gotten into jazz via hip hop, right? Like I knew about Elvin because, you know, around 1991, Pete Rock and, and Q-Tip and, and all these guys started sampling jazz. So we found out, you know, we, we searched down the, 
the sample and it's Freddie Hubbard or we search down the sample and it's Lou Donaldson and then you look who the drummer is and it's 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 Idris Muhammad and then you track down all of his records and then you you know it's just it, it snowballs in that way so by the end of high school I was a huge jazz fan don't tell me you play, play the trumpet or something no okay. no no Thank God. no that, that embouchure <laughs> is too much for me but I say all that to say that I never thought I'd be in the position again of being you know the youngest guy in the room by 30 years and soaking up all of this incredible history and memory like I did when I was out there with Elvin and we would tour the world and we'd walk into some hotel bar at the venue we're playing in Norway and all of a sudden Elvin is lifting some fragile white dude off the ground and I'm like what the hell is going on and then he's like this is Dave Brubeck and I'm like oh (laughs) you know it was that kind of shit all the time and it's very weird and also gratifying and and wonderful to be 43 and once again, be the youngest guy in the room by 30 years and be around these like incredible, funny, wonderful dudes and listen to all these stories. And the difference now is that I actually get to go on stage with them. I don't just, you know, pour the, the wine and then like sit in the wings. Right, right. Um, so it's really fun. Wow. You've lived a lot of lives. <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, it's good to meet you uh, in person. It's good to talk to you. Congratulations. So you published two books basically in rapid succession. Yeah, yeah, within a week of each other. Okay. Which was not a plan. It just kind of happened that way. It just kind of happened. Well, congrats on all of the above, and we'll look forward to uh, all that comes next. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. There you have it. That is Adam Mann's back. His new book, Fuck, Now There Are Two of You, is available from Akashic Books, along with uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep, You Have to Fucking Eat. There's another one called Seriously, Just Go to Sleep. Seriously, You Have to Eat. (laughs) It's a whole library of uh, profane content. And then there are the uh, literary fiction novels, Angry Black White Boy, The End of the Jews, Rage is Back. It's got the humor collection with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel, A Field Guide to the Jewish People. Go get all of it. Again, the, uh, the author is Adam Mansback. The website is adammansback.com. You can follow him on Twitter at uh, Adam Mansback. Enjoyable conversation, right? It's a busy guy. So... Uh, if you would like to write to me, if you have a, if you have an itch, if you have the itch to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the other people app. This program has its own official app. The other people with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it if you want it. If you want to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you've been meaning to do that and you haven't gotten around to it, maybe today's the day. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Another great way to support the show is to rate it and review it over at iTunes. That helps. Do that if you can. Take a few minutes, like three minutes, four minutes. So, uh, next up on the program, I have a conversation with uh, Mimi Locke, who has a debut story collection called Last of Her Name. It's a novella and stories. It's excellent. 
And uh, I, had an, I had a wonderful time meeting her and talking with her. She runs a nonprofit up in the Bay Area with Dave Eggers. And uh, just, uh, it's, a, it's a good one. So stay tuned, okay? All right. Is this it? Are we done? Is there more? I think we're done. Wait. <laughs> 